Well, at this time, um, it's my privilege to introduce to you uh, Simon, and I never caught how to say your last name, Simon. Is it Lisak or Lissak or neither? Keep going. Uh, Lissak. Is that it? Simon Lissak. All right. Well, this is Simon, and I'll just stick with Simon. That's easier. And Simon is from London, England, and he's a missionary with Chosen People Ministries. And I'll allow him to, to tell you the rest maybe of his story and introduce himself a little bit. Uh, but let's give a warm welcome to Simon this morning. Hello. Ah, okay. Wow, you're all in the dark. I hope not spiritually. <laughs> Josh, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, my name's Simon. Uh, I haven't come all the way from London this morning. I came all the way from... Uh, no, uh, quite a long way. Two, two and a half hours drive. I can't even remember where I've left. Anyway, I, uh, I'm from London, and that means I have an English accent which means for the next two or three minutes, you'll be trying to work out how I speak English, but not the English you speak. So, uh, we're going to, in front of me, you've got a table laid out that's all symbolic. It's called a Seder table, and Seder means in Hebrew, the order, or order, and it's a traditional Jewish celebration of Pesach, of Passover. But uh, before I start, I just wondered whether there are any Jewish people here. I mean, I'll, I'll put my hand out and say I'm Jewish, but I wonder even in the, in the darkness whether I can see any other hands up saying they're Jewish. And generally when I put the hand, my hand up, I'm the only one putting my hand up. In, in 95%, maybe even more churches, the same answer. So I wonder if you can guess what percentage of Jewish people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's a, like a real question. Don't, you will not be struck down for shouting out in church. Okay, we're going to be here quite a long time. I'll just take a seat while people start guessing. Five percent, bit lower than that. Two percent, bit lower than that. You're about right, yeah, good. So about one percent, two percent, let's say, let's be generous, two percent of Jewish people believe Jesus is their Messiah. Two percent. It makes Jewish people essentially and technically an unreached people group. They're like an unreached people group. And then you've got to think, well, when, when, Jesus, when the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us, he could have chosen to be anything, couldn't he? Anyone. He could have been from New York or he could have come from Chicago. I imagine he would probably have been born in Brooklyn if it was in America. But he chose to be a Jewish man and he chose to be born in Israel. And yet as we look around the church, there are no Jewish people here. And that's what drives me as a missionary. If anything drives me as a missionary, it's that. Some of you will have... If I ask some of you to put your hands up if you've got unsaved family, I guess a few more people would put their hands up, no? So imagine... Just, I want you to see how Jesus looks at his unsaved family. Imagine that you came from a family of 12... And maybe one of them was a believer and the rest not. How would you feel as that believer in that family about the rest of your family? Their state before God. It's a pretty sad state of affairs. And no wonder, as he looks over Jerusalem, he wept. Now I'm a, a fairly kind of commonplace Jew. I say that uh, because uh, my mum is not Jewish. My dad's Jewish, they're from a Holocaust surviving family, and I grew up in a totally secular environment with no Bible, no God, no organized religion. In fact, specifically, no organized religion. And it wasn't till my first son was born and I began to wonder really what the meaning of life was that I, that I actually began to even think about anything beyond the physical. And so it's a great surprise, really, to me that I'm standing here 
about to show you traditional Jewish customs that point to your, your very goyish Jesus. Uh, the church is very goyish, Gentile Jesus. And, and you just need to realize that at the end of this presentation, as I get to the kind of as we get to the close of it, I'm going to bring you back and show you the Trinity. I'm going to show you Jesus. I'm going to show you Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's all in this traditional Seder, this traditional pattern. And I invite you to go on to the, the Google and uh, search under Chabad or any traditional Jewish Seder to see that it's exactly the same as you're going to see this morning. So, without further ado, let me get started. Now, do you know when Passover is? Today? Yeah, we're in it. Excellent. We're, we're right in it. It started on Friday. You know that the Jewish day starts in the evening, not in the morning. That's the joke about why Jewish people are always one step ahead, because our day starts before yours. So Passover has started. It started a few weeks ago, a few days ago, but in fact, for most Jewish people... It started about six weeks ago when they start to clean the house. There's a big cleaning operation that goes on in the house. And this big cleaning operation is focused on the removal of one thing, and that's leaven, yeast. So you have to get rid of everything in the house. Everything needs to come out. And this process is kind of a pretty intense sort of thing. And the idea of it, the rabbis will tell you, is that since sin... In the, in the Bible is symbolized by yeast. The removal of sin before Passover is a symbol of purifying your home. Because this Passover meal is celebrated in the home, not in a synagogue, not in, not in an outside building, but with the family, with the family of God. Now, before we go and look at it, I just want to read you Exodus 12. So um, I don't, if, you'd like to, if you've got Bibles and you'd like to open them, I'm just going to read you from Exodus 12 because some of us here won't be so familiar with actually the detail of the first Passover. Because right about now we're celebrating the maybe three and a half thousand, there have been three and a half thousand Passovers approximately since, uh, since Exodus 12. Okay, so Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Now before we go any further, do you see that it says this is to be your first month, the beginning of a new year? The beginning of a new calendar happens at Exodus. Now what is the main thrust, what's the main theme of Exodus? It begins with R. Man, you're a tough crowd. Come on. No one's going to... The answer is not Jesus in this case because it begins with R. It's not grace because that begins with G. Way! Well done, pastor. Or pastor-to-be. Redemption. So what we're remembering, what the Israelites are being told is to remember redemption. And guess what they're told? Redemption is a new start to your year. New start to your life, which is... That's what we say, isn't it, in the gospel? That when you're born again, that's like a new start. I'm 11 and a half years old, although I look 49. 11 and a half years old in the Lord. And look, it's right there in Exodus 12, right at the beginning. This is to be a new year for you. And so then the question is, well, how is it going to be a new year? What's going to happen next? So we look on a bit. Tell the whole community of Israel that on this day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. They've got to share it. And this lamb, it says, in verse 5, must be, that you choose must be a year-old male without defect. So you've got to choose a year-old male lamb without defect from the herd or from the goats. Take care until the 14th day of the month. So you bring a little lambsy into your home for like three to four days, enough time for you to inspect him, to make sure that he is free from blemish, that he's perfect, and enough time for the kids to give him a name, probably. 
and maybe tie little bows on him if, he's a girl, if there are girls in the house. So you get very familiar with this lamb. And then on the 14th day, when all the people of the community must slaughter this animal at twilight. And then verse 7, they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread without yeast. So you're going to see on the table, bitter herbs and bread without yeast. So you can see... This is like a Bible study with interactive stuff happening and food and questions. And in fact, when we get a bit further down, you'll see that questions are a key part of it. It's supposed to be interactive. So it's not just me pushing you for fun. Questions are part of, we're supposed to interact. So it says, don't don't boil the meat, but roast it. Eat everything. This is how you to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt your sandals on your feet and your staff in hand, eat it in haste, it's the Lord's Passover. Passover is, Pesach is Hebrew for Passover. When I see the blood in verse 13 on the door, it will be a sign on your houses, and when I see it, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That's an incredible promise, isn't it? Is it not an incredible promise? That judgment that was to fall on every, every single household in Egypt because of this blood would pass over. Whose blood? The blood of the lamb. The perfect male lamb of God. In brackets. You see how prophetic, how detailed the picture is. And God's purpose in giving us all this detail is so that we can be confident of the truth. So as it says outside, because we trust him... We don't harden our hearts. Do not harden your heart, it says, as you go out. We don't harden our hearts because we're trusting him. You know, to to be a soft-hearted person takes trust. And he wants you to trust in him this morning. For seven days, it says in verse 13, 415, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove yeast from all your houses. Okay, so you see why we remove all the yeast? We do it in advance. Forever eat anything with yeast in it from the first day until the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. It's not that yeast is bad. It's not that eating bread without yeast makes you holy. It's obedience to God's commands that's at stake here. It's a symbolic thing. Hold a sacred assembly and then in verse 17 celebrate the feast of unleavened bread because on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt, Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. And then it repeats the instructions. And in verse 22 it says, Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, put some of the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe. God will see the blood on top of the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He'll not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And in verse 26... When children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Now this might seem like old history to you, but when your children, parents, ask you, what does this ceremony mean? I hope you'll see that this is the eternal Passover sacrifice to the Lord. Not the lamb three and a half thousand years ago, but one perfect sacrifice for all time. So now you know the heart of the story. Let's get on and see how we would celebrate. So the house has been made clean. And uh, traditionally, the lady of the house, I'm just slightly concerned about how long I've taken to get here. But uh, we'll be okay, I think. The lady of the house... It's cleaned the, cleaned the place, but she's left a small piece of leaven somewhere in the house. And so the husband comes home on Passover night, puts a cloth on his arm, picks up a feather and a spoon, and goes on a thing called the Bedi Kat Hametz, the search for leaven. And, it, and 
pretty much every year, this little bit of symbolic leaven is left in the same place. So when he goes, to, so it's always, for example, on the corner of the grand piano, because every Jewish home has a grand piano. In it. <laughs> so you take the spoon and you put the little piece of leaven on the top there like that, and then you wrap it up because you don't want to touch it. Why don't you want to touch it? Because it's a symbol of sin and touching it would make you unclean and you've just been spending six weeks getting the house pure. So you can see that the process of approaching God at Passover is first a process of purification. It's just like we approach the communion table, we confess our sins, we we seek to be in good standing with all our fellow believers. That's what we do. So the Jewish people are seeking to be pure in God's sight before Passover. Now when this is wrapped up, you'd go to the synagogue and in the old days you'd chuck it in uh, in a big bonfire, but now you just chuck it in the rubbish bin. Like you say trash can, don't you? But in England we say, into the rubbish bin with that. And now the house is clean and I can say it's ready to celebrate the Passover. But before I start leading you through the Passover, I'll put on a, 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 a mitre. It's a white hat and it's a symbol of a crown. And then I'll put on a coat, a white coat, called a kittle. Now I do speculate that having seen this year after year at home with the father putting this, uh, this coat on, that this could very well be the reason why so many Jewish boys want to be dentists or doctors. <laughs> okay, so now, I am dressed as a righteous king. In Jewish tradition, white is a symbol of righteousness and a symbol of royalty. And now I am free as a king, to lead my family through the Passover Seder. And the first thing that we do is the thing that we would do each uh, Shabbat evening. We would light candles. And this is normally the job of the woman of the house. But since we don't have any Jewish women in the house, I will do it. And I'll just tell you the prayer that you would say. Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, who commands us to kindle the Passover lights. Amen. And so now we have, first we had purification, and now what we've got is light. And if you go online, you'll see uh, that the women, when they do this, they do this with their hands. They waft in the presence of God. So purification is a prerequisite for inviting the presence of God into the home. And now what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate a Passover meal in the presence of God. The next item, the next thing that we would do is we would bring wine. Passover is celebrated in a traditional home. You would consume four full glasses of wine. That includes all the kids. Not really. But four full glasses of wine. And you'd hold up the first cup, which is called the cup of sanctification. And you'd say a prayer. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. Amen. You think you can do that in Hebrew? Do it with me? No? How about doing the Amen bit with me? Every time we do a cup. There are four cups, you get to do it four times. Fluent Hebrew speakers by the end of the service. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melekaulam Bore Prihagafen. Was that a joyful amen? <laughs> In England, that might, you might get away with that. We're going to be here a long time. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Prihagafen. Better, let's move on for the sake of keeping to time. So, the, the first cup, the cup of sanctification, is a sign of overflowing joy at our redemption. And the next thing we do is we take up a bag called the matzatosh. Can you say matzatosh? Matzatosh. In this bag, there are three pieces of bread separated, three identical pieces of bread separated by little pieces of linen. You reach inside here, and get ready because you've got some more Hebrew coming up. You reach inside here, and you hold up the piece of unleavened bread, and you say, Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Brilliant. 
and then you break this piece of bread in two. You set one piece aside, and this piece, the piece that got revealed, is then taken to one side, and it's wrapped in a white linen cloth. Very carefully. And it's held up and given a name. The name it's given is the afikomen. And afikomen is a Greek word, and it just means that which comes later. So it's, it's revealed, broken, wrapped up, and then it's hidden. It's put out of sight from the family, and in fact the children will be sent to look for it after the meal that we're not having. So now we've got this, the, the unleavened bread, which you saw in Exodus 12, is a central part of the, the process. And if you eat unleavened bread for a whole week, you'll know why it's sometimes called the bread of affliction. <laughs> but now we're going to move on to this. This is the Seder plate. And the, the whole, or, this is all organized within a little book called the Haggadah. And the Haggadah just means the telling. And actually, you can, uh, we've got some Haggadah, little uh, messianic Haggadahs. If you'd like to take one, they're on the... Uh, on the table outside. And the first item we'd have on the Seder plate is some parsley, or a carpus as we'd call it. And the parsley is a symbol of life, and we would take it and we would dip it twice into salt water. And written into the ritual is the question that the children ask of the parents, why on this night do we dip the, 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 the greens twice in salt water? Well, salt water is a symbol of tears, and this is a symbol of life, and dipping it twice is to remind us that a life in slavery is a life full of tears. A life in slavery is a life full of tears, and so you would eat it. Now, the next thing on the Seder plate is, uh, yeah, we'll do the horseradish. Now, as many little boys know, horseradish is a sweet mixture of uh, sort of like ice cream, but, of, but it doesn't need to go in the fridge. And at this point, I need a volunteer. Jacob, thank you for putting your hand up. My son's called Jacob. This was written. Okay, Jacob. What's the number for, uh, for, the, um, for the ambulance? Okay, so just try a bit of that first and then see how you go. Oh. Horseradish is pretty strong. I did say to him just a little bit. Wow, this is a strong boy. Horseradish is supposed to be to generate tears. It's to encourage us. You can sit down now, Jacob. Well done. Horseradish is supposed to make us cry. We cry as we look back over what it was to be enslaved. So as Christians, we can look back to the days that we lived before we were saved, before we knew Jesus as our Savior. We can look back and we can, we can be sorrowful about this, our state or the state of people that we know who are yet unsaved. And the next item is an, not an orange, it's an onion. And now the pastor needs to come up and eat the whole onion. No. The onion is a bitter root, isn't it? And it's, it's to remind us of the, of the dangers of bitterness when we are enslaved or when we are suffering. The Israelites suffered, and so it was easy for them to become embittered. And this is like a warning. You know, in 1 Peter, it tells us that it's better to suffer for doing good if it, and that's commendable in God's sight. And every year, this onion reminds me that if you're with me in some suffering this year, remember that that is commendable in God's sight and it is not an excuse for being bitter. And in fact, now is the time to say to God, Lord, please reach into me by your spirit, search me and remove any bitterness in my heart. Which leads us on to the next item, the haroset. Now, the haroset looks a bit like mud, but it doesn't taste like mud, thankfully. It's a mixture of apples and, uh, apples and raisins, and it tastes delicious. It's there to symbolize the mortar that the Israelites used as they were building the cities for Pharaoh. And if you ask the rabbis, why now such a sweet mixture? They'll tell you because even the bitterest labor 
can be sweetened by the promise of redemption. Even, amen. Even this, the bitterest labor can be sweetened by the promise of redemption. And maybe in Hebrews, you've got your best example of that, he, where he, he, Jesus looks onto the cross and, and forfeited and suffered because he was looking on. He could suffer because he could see the redemption. When we suffer, we're to look on to him and to what he has in store for us. We're to remember that we are redeemed. We were redeemed, we are redeemed, we will be redeemed. This is a very kind of current thing for us. And then next we come to an egg. There's an egg on the Seder table. And we take this egg and we break it. And this egg is called the Hagigah. And it's symbolic of the temple and the sacrifices. And so you take a piece of the bread, and then you, the bread, the egg, glad to see you're all paying attention. The, take the egg, and then you dip it twice in the salt water, and you eat it. Dip it twice in salt water, why? Tears. So now, like I said to you, Jewish people, less than 1%, or 1% believing in Jesus, but they have no temple. We have no temple, no priests, and no sacrifices. No way, therefore, to atone for sin. And so each year at Passover, we remember that truth with this egg. And the last item on the Seder plate is the lamb shank bone. And the lamb shank bone reminds us of the lamb that was sacrificed morning and evening as atonement for sin. And that lamb that was sacrificed morning and evening is a picture of the lamb that we read about in Exodus 12 and ultimately a picture of Jesus, the lamb. So we see that picture made more clearly even as we look at Isaiah 53, don't we? There's another lamb there that goes to the slaughter without opening his mouth. So here is the problem for Jewish people with no temple and no lamb to be sacrificed, how is atonement made? Well, the, the way atonement will be made for any Jewish person is exactly the same way that atonement is made for you. Through the life, death, through trusting in the life, death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's really what our ministry is about. Um, it, it, is, it is about sharing the gospel with Jewish people so that the Passover eternally can happen for them. And the second cup that we would have at the Seder table is actually called the cup of plagues. It's called the cup of plagues. And uh, we would open our, we'd open our Haggadahs and we'd read in the Haggadahs and we'd say a blessing, Barukatah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Alem, Borei Prihagafen. And you'd take a little drop of the red wine for each plague. So I'll say blood and you say Blood! Back to me. And then you drop the wine. So are you ready to do that? Blood! Yeah. Frogs! Frogs. Gnats! Yeah. Flies! Flies. Livestock. Livestock! Boils! Boils. Yuck. Hail! Yeah. Locusts! Locusts. Darkness. Darkness! And the slaying of the firstborn. This little ritual, so now we would have ten little dots of blood around in a circle on our plates. And this ritual teaches us that, there is, that God will judge. God will judge. And we run back to the lamb that we've remembered on the plate as our way to atone so that death could pass over. So the judgment would not fall on us. Now, after the cup of plagues, which you don't drink, obviously, for health and safety reasons, after the cup of plagues, then you would have the meal. And we're not going to have the meal, but normally there'd be a big sort of banquet type of thing. And then after the meal, we'd say grace. Because in Jewish tradition, you say grace after the meal, thanking God for his provision for us. But we can't restart the evening at this point because we don't have something. Do you remember what it was called, the thing that we hid? Hmm? Not all at once, please. You're going to deafen me. The unleavened bread, the matzah bread, it's called the afikoman. 
So the kids would run around and look for the epicomen that would be hidden somewhere in the house, not the same place as the, uh, not the same place every year on the grand piano because that would be boring. Shows how we change as we grow up. Hey, when we're older, we just want it on the grand piano. Let's go and get it. When we're kids, it's like, ooh, let's go and hide. It's an interesting thought. I never, I never, never crossed my mind until this very moment. But when Jesus says about us to be like children, you know, searching out the truth of God. Searching through the scriptures for, for, for hope and, and confidence about our salvation. We should be like the ch- kids chasing after the afikoman. So they bring the afikoman back to the dad. The dad unwraps the afikoman. And then he takes the afikoman and he breaks a small piece. And he gives it to everyone around his table, which is you four in this case. problem. Sorry about the hoovering. Hoovering, vacuuming, you say, don't you? Not hoovering. Everyone around the table has a little piece of this bread, a little piece of this afikoman, and then the third cup, the cup of redemption, gets drunk. So lift up the cup. Barukatar Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Forei Prihagafen. Oh man, it's going to have to be better than that. Barukata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Prihagafen. Amen. Because this is the cup of redemption. And so, with the cup of redemption, this small piece of bread and wine, they're drunk together. Does that remind you of anything? How cool is that? So now you know where communion came from. And now you might want to turn. How long have we Where's he gone, the pastor? 11 o'clock. Where's he? Where's the pastor? Oh, there you are. Okay, we good, are we? Open your Bibles to Luke 22. Let's see if Luke 22 looks a bit different to you now than it did the last time you looked at it. So I'm really well aware... I was very encouraged when I came in and uh, saw the Lion of Judah all over the place. And I'm very excited that you're spending time to uh, looking at the Gospels. And actually, even before we look at Luke 22, do you remember back in Exodus 12, I tried to make a reasonable big deal about how the Passover lamb gets taken into the home and is inspected. It's looked at. It's, 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 they got to know it. And do you see how that's mirrored in the writings of the Gospels? Because at Passover, Jesus comes comes to his people and he's inspected by them. And he's found to be without blemish. Even the, the whole story is in that little... Do you see that? Maybe just something to think about. So look at, let's look at Luke 22. So Luke 22, verse 1. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was called Passover... And it was approaching. And the chief priests and the teacher of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus said to Peter and John, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Now a question... What, does prep, what, what preparations needed to be made in that room? Because you know the answer now. I don't know what is the answer. Get rid of the leaven. Get rid of the leaven. Why get rid of the leaven? There you go. So now you know what they were doing. They were checking to make sure that the room was free of leaven. They left and found things in verse 13, just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came and his apostles reclined at the table... Why do you think they lay down at the table? Tired? Was it a long walk? Reclining in ancient Middle Eastern culture was a symbol of people who were free. Free from slavery. 
So you recline at Passover because you've been set free. You're remembering that God delivered you out of Egypt, out of slavery. So that's why they're reclining. He says, I've eagerly desired to, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I'll not drink of it till the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, we can't tell really now, can we, whether that's what number cup that is. But it might be the first cup, because it's the first cup that we hear about in the, in the traditions, and it's the cup of sanctification. And then it says, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. So you saw me taking bread, giving thanks for it, and then breaking it. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. So which is this cup? Is it of one, two, or three? Three, exactly. It's the cup of redemption. So he takes the cup of redemption, and then he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, this new covenant wasn't something that he had made up. It was someone that Jer- something that Jeremiah had promised, no? Jeremiah 31 promises a new covenant, And here he's saying, that promise that you've been reading about in Jeremiah 31 has been fulfilled. And when I get to this point, I'm reminded of a a rabbi that I met in the streets of Stamford Hill, which is an ultra-Orthodox community. There was a car accident, and I, that's my mission, that's the work I do. I work mostly with the really Orthodox guys who look a bit like the Amish. So I work with them. They live in a cut-off community, just like the Amish. They live with a lot of traditions, and they live separate. They consider to be godly, God-fearing lives. And that's the people that I reach out to. I reach out to them because I love them. I reach out to them because they're proud to be Jewish, and they they, they think that they are drawing themselves close to to God through essentially through a works gospel. And so I want to share God's grace with them, and that's what drives me in that mission. And... I was standing with this group of people by this accident, and when men stand around an accident in the road, what they do is they work out what happened from what little pieces of information they have. And so this is what we did, and there was a group of about eight of us. And after I was part of this group, I said to them, do you mind if I ask you a question? And the guy said to me, you better ask the rabbi, he's standing next to you. So I said, okay, I'll ask the rabbi. And I asked the rabbi, I said, rabbi, um, do you mind if I ask you something? And just so you know, when you're doing evangelism, asking permission to ask someone a question is a great thing to do, whether it's Jew or a Gentile. I asked him, why don't you teach Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, or Daniel 9 in the synagogue? There was as much quiet as there is in here. So I thought, I didn't know what to say, so I thought, I'm sorry, did you not understand me? I'll repeat the question. Why is it that you don't teach Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, and Daniel 9 in the synagogue? I mean, this might be a surprise to you that those three texts are not taught. I hope it is a surprise to you because I'm hoping that those three texts you know and that they are three texts that encourage you about the truth of the gospel. So I asked him again, why? Do you know what he said? I don't teach anything in my congregation that causes my congregation to doubt. To doubt. I don't teach anything in my congregation that would cause people to doubt. So the very thing that causes you to be confident is the very thing that is held back from the Jewish people by their pastors, essentially. And that's why at Chosen People we we have a website called Isaiah53.com. I'd encourage you to go and have a look at it. Uh, we also have a, a website called ifoundshalom.com. And on ifoundshalom.com, we have testimonies again and again of Jewish people who come to faith reading Isaiah 53. And, the wit- and, and virtually every single time, it's the witness of a Christian Bible believer alongside either in contact or prayer. So you are the Jewish missionaries, and we would really love uh, to stay in contact with you. Um, everyone should have got one of these, uh, uh, at least every family should have got one of these little uh, brochures. On here are some details 
about my journey to, to believing in Jesus and details about our ministry. And I'd invite you just to open this up very quickly and join me in a Chosen People Ministries tradition that crosses all the way over to London uh, on a regular basis. We open up these and there's a little white section here which we, uh, we fold very seriously because this is a holy thing to do. And then tearing, which is a subject very close to the Jewish male heart. And then what we do, one, two, three, we tear it off like that. Very quickly because it doesn't hurt as much. And unless, yeah, keep going. So unless you're a super creative, you'll have two pieces of paper in your hand. One of them is a big piece. That's about us. This piece is about you. And it's about connecting you to us so that I can send you, if you feel moved, uh, our prayer letter. A prayer letter based... It'll, if you sign up for this, what you'll get is a prayer letter that connects you to the wider ministry, but specifically also to our work in London, which I'd love you to pray for, because I can promise you that we need your prayers. It's, a, it's hard ground in the, in the UK. Um, just to give you an idea, if you put up a sign on, your, on the motorway, as we call it, what you call the highway, saying Jesus is real, and on the back it said hell is real, it would not last one day before it was torn down. No one paints gospel messages on the side of their house in England. I see like gospel messages painted on the sides of barns. The gospel is proclaimed everywhere here. It's not proclaimed half as much in the UK. And so we need you guys to be praying that Jewish, English Jewish people would be saved. So I'd love you to join. If you'd love to give a gift or you'd like to buy some of the materials on the table at the back, that'd be great because otherwise I'm going to have excess luggage bills going back to London with them all. So... That is the detail about the ministry. That's how you can find out more. I want to take you on to the last cup, the cup of Hallel. Hallel, you all know a Hebrew word, did you know? Hallel is a clue. What do you think it might be? Come on. I know I'm going on a bit, but hallelujah. It's the hallelujah cup, and it's the last cup. It's the cup of praise, and you would read through, you'd read through the great Hallel, which is Psalm Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. Psalm 118. And let me just read the last little bit in there. So this is, this is what you would sing at the end of the Passover meal. And so you can say, The Lord is exalted over all the nations, His glory above all the heavens. That's surprising. It's all the nations, not just the nation of Israel. Right from the start, God's purpose was to, to redeem the Gentiles and the Jews. And in fact, Romans then later teaches us it's actually the hardening of the Jewish people's hearts that meant fullness for you as Gentiles. Their rejection of the gospel is what has filled this church this morning. In, verse, in uh, Psalm 116, the Lord is gracious and righteous, and full of compassion. In verse in 18, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And then, in verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The day that you got saved is the day to rejoice and be glad in. And Jewish people for thousands of years have been reading this psalm and looking back to the day of redemption that was past and looking forward to the coming of a Messiah who's already come. And if you want the answer to why they don't teach Daniel 9 in the synagogues, it's because Daniel 9 says that the Messiah must be killed before the destruction of the temple. And so why would looking at the book of Daniel and particularly the book of 9, chapter 9 cause doubt? Because there would be conflict between the authority of the word of God and the authority of the leaders of God. And so that's the, that's the challenge that we face. That's why so many Jewish people are unsaved is because they're under the authority of a, of, a, of a rabbinic group of leaders who don't want them to read the scriptures for themselves. Now, at the very end of the table is a place setting and a little place that it is is Elijah's place setting. And why would you have a, a setting at the end of your table for Elijah? Elijah. 
He has to return, exactly. He's got to return before the Messiah comes. So every year, we do this ritual as Jewish people. Elijah hasn't come. We send the kids out to the door to see if Elijah's out there in his sort of uh, rusty old coat and his locusts in honey. And he's not there. And so they come back and we say, next year in Jerusalem. So we know that Elijah hasn't come, so we know Messiah hasn't come. You know, it's like a smoke alarm. It goes off. There's no, first there's smoke, then there's fire. First Elijah, then Messiah. No, no smoke alarm, no fire. No Elijah, no Messiah. And that's why it's so vitally important to see why Jesus is clear to say that John the Baptist is Elijah. So important to see these little details, see what they mean. Because another thing is that, another issue is that they actually, the Old Testament that we have as Christians is in a different order to the Tanakh that Jewish people read. And so where we see, uh, where we see the end, we're waiting for Elijah, and then, boom, Matthew 1, actually the end of their book is the destruction of the temple, to the end of two chronicles. So even that begins to hide some of the gospel message from them as, as it's shown to them. Now, before we finish, I did promise you that you'd see the whole story of the gospel in all, these, uh, in all these items. And so I'd like to try and show that to you because I want you to be confident of the truth of the gospel. This is a ritual done in most Jewish homes year after year for thousands of years. The bag had how many pieces of bread in it? What do we know that's got three in it in Christianity? Come on, you theologians. Trinity, brilliant. We brought out one piece which was seen by everybody. So what's left in the bag? Unseen. The Father and the Spirit hidden in the bag because you can't see them. Father in, in unapproachable light. The Holy Spirit is invisible. This symbol with, before, with all three in it is called Echad. It's a unity. So the, the joke is, if you don't know the Shema, you're not Jewish. And the Shema is this. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jewish people are told, God's one, not three. You can't be a Christian and be Jewish. But Echad in the Shema is plural unity. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 2 to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve. They're one. They're one. Like God, like in, in John when he's praying, uh, when Jesus is praying that they would have the unity, that the, we would have the unity that he has with the Father and the Spirit. That's the same idea of unity. So, here's the Trinity is the start of it. And the man leading the whole thing is dressed up as a righteous, faultless king. Hello, have there ever been any faultless kings? No. Never. Not even any faultless presidents. And it doesn't look like that's going to change soon. <laughs> okay, so the Trinity. Out comes what? The third or the second person of the Trinity, the Son. He's revealed, and what happened to him? He's broken. And then what happened to him? He got wrapped up in white, didn't he? He got wrapped up in white linen, and then he was buried. Really? Yeah, why? Why all this, you ask? Ask a Jewish person what the three sections mean. You know what they'll say pretty much? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or they might say, uh, God, the priesthood in Israel. But if so, what's this whole ritual with the bringing one out and breaking him and wrapping him up and then hiding him away for a good length of time while we eat and then bringing him back breaking him and sharing him with, the, with this third cup of the cup of redemption. Is that not... I mean, some of you may have had great evidence of God's sovereign power to work even through you. This is great evidence of God's desire that Jewish people could accept the gospel because it's so culturally relevant for them. Isn't that amazing? And actually... It's even more amazing. So the bread, the bread is without yeast. So the body is a, 
all three persons of the Trinity are without sin. They're holy and perfect. This one that you see has holes. It's pierced for our transgressions. So we've got like a sinless body that's revealed before all of the people of God. It's broke, it's, it's pierced, it's broken, it's buried and brought back with the cup of redemption. Come on. <laughs> Is that coincidence? Could that be coincidence? And although this matzah doesn't show it particularly well, it's a regulation of the rabbis that this be, this be burnt. So it has like bruises. Some of you have got test, uh, translations that will talk about the servant in Isaiah 53 being bruised. So you've got a sinless body revealed, broken, pierced, bruised, buried, and brought back with the cup of redemption. <laughs> By people who say, you're Meshuggah if you think that Jesus is the Messiah. You're crazy if you think that, and you think they're, they think we're crazy. They do this ritual every year, and they don't see Jesus' story in this. Because, as it says in Isaiah 53, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's been, to be, been revealed to you by his grace. By his Holy Spirit, he's opened your hearts and your minds to the truth of the gospel. And that's why you see, and that's why I need you to pray. Because there's one of me and several hundred of you. The more people pray for Jewish people, the more Jewish people will save, be saved. That's my conviction. That's my belief. So if you'd love to join us in that prayer, that'd be great. But that is Messiah. That's Jesus. That's the Christ in the Passover. Laid bare every year before most Jewish homes so that they can see the gospel for themselves. This mysterious bag, a tradition that nobody knows the meaning of anymore, is clearly the Trinity. It's clearly about the Messiah. It's clearly about what he needed to do so that we could enter into redemption. And he's given us a great reason to celebrate. Amen? Amen. So I'll hand back to Josh.